Welcome to the Master Your Mix podcast, helping engineers, producers, and artists create professional recordings and mixes, even from home. I'm your host, Mike and Davina. Let's get started. Hey, welcome to the Master Mix Podcast. My name is Mike and Navina, and thank you so much for being here with me today. Today, my guest is Mary Mazurik, and if you're not familiar with her, Mary is a Grammy-nominated recording engineer, radio and podcast producer, an educator with over 30 years of experience in the industry. She does a lot of work doing uh, live radio broadcasts. She's worked with people such as the European Broadcast Union, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Haymarket Opera Company, Yo-Yo Ma, the Lyric Opera of Chicago, and many, many more. And in this conversation, we have a really cool chat about working with classical music, which isn't something we have talked about a lot on the podcast before, but I think whether you're working in classical music or whether you're doing rock music, that kind of thing, a lot of the advice that Mary shares here is definitely applicable. And she just has a really refreshing approach to her technique. And one thing she talks a lot about in this interview that I really like is the concept of mixing through mic placement. And I think that this is a really refreshing approach that she takes. And just when you hear how she breaks things down and why she makes the decisions she does, it allows you to see how you can work really, really fast and not need to put a lot of effort into the mixing stage. And especially with the stuff that she's doing where it's all live to air and you only get one shot at mixing it and you have to work fast, this preparation of proper mic placement and the way she really breaks it down it does make the overall experience better and makes the mixes better and makes it faster so that she can ultimately pull off the amazing sounding mixes that she's getting. So I think you're going to find this interview really, really interesting. So let's just jump right into it. Mary Mazurik, thank you so much for being on the Master Mix podcast. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Uh, Thank you so much for having me. Doing great. Thank you. For people who might not be familiar with your background, your story, how you got into music and ultimately to all the amazing stuff you're working on now, can you give us that story? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it all happened by accident. <laughs> um, so, so basically, I love music. I studied piano and voice, went to music school. Um, but really, if you are going to be a classical performer, you have to start playing piano like immediately out of the womb. And I didn't start until I was like 11. So it was already kind of too late for me. But I mean, I did love music and I did study it. Um, I went to a conservatory style music school, um, knew I wasn't going to be a performer, but I, I really wanted to do something with music. And at the time, um, it was a fairly new program. It was back in like the late 80s uh, when I was in college. Uh, they had a program, it was at DePaul University, they had a program called Sound Recording Technology, and I was like, I don't know what that is, but I think I can do that. <laughs> um, and did you at least it, do like a tour of the of the program before you went in, or did you just go out entirely off the No, name? you know what? No, it was just totally an intuitive hit. I'm like, I'm doing this. Um, Amazing. And of course, we had to um, interview to get into this program, and the uh, person who was heading the program, his name was Murray Allen. So he owned one of the big three studios in Chicago called Universal Recording, the room that was originally started by Bill Putnam. Nice. So uh, he was head of the program at DePaul University, and we all went in for interviews. And he's like, why do you want to do this major? And I said, I like music and I like science, and I think this is a great way to combine both of them. And he said, best answer I've heard all day you're in. (laughs) Amazing. Okay. All right. Awesome. That's easy. All right. <laughs> Great. 
I love it. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I had a really great experience at DePaul. Um, so we had most of our classes at Universal, which was great. Um, then you could see who was coming into the studio. Um, like Tom Hanks was there doing ADR one time and Metallica was there and, cool. you know, uh, the, the roster goes on and it was, it was really amazing because I had finished almost all my gen eds by the time I got to my major. So I would just go hang out at the studio. Like I'd go early and just hang out. <laughs> See who was there. seems like the place to be. You'd meet some cool people along the way and maybe get some cool experiences out of it. Yeah, for sure. And then like one day I was, I came in early and I got up the nerve and I went into Murray Allen's office and I said, Hey Murray, can I assist here? And he just kind of looked at me and was like, yeah, okay, go see so-and-so in the office. So I went to the office and I said, hey, uh, Murray said I could assist here. And the office manager's like, well, Mr. Allen, blah, blah, blah. And here, file these papers. But Murray said I could assist. No, okay, great. Well, you're going to start in the office filing papers. Um, and then at that time, my, my teacher, Tom Miller, was walking by. He was the chief engineer at the time uh, at Universal. And he said, uh, do you want to assist? And I said, yes. And he's like, follow me. So I got to assist a jingle session and um, had some really great experiences there. I, they were restoring Orson Welles' Othello at the time. So I got to work on a lot of the Foley. Got Very to help cool. their Foley, en uh, their engineer, Lirita de la Serna, a lot on that. Um, got to sit on, on scoring sessions. Um, plus, jingles were big at the time in Chicago. Got to work on a bunch of those. Got to work on the on the Oprah Winfrey show a couple times as an A2. Very yeah, cool. it was it was like fantastic uh, experience there. That's awesome. And it sounds like kind of uh, right timing, right timing, I guess, to have that one person walking by and, you know, be able I to know. actually let you assist, right? Because so many people try to get into these studios and, yeah, they'll say, like, hey, can I assist? And it, it is very much that kind of like, okay, cool, let's start you off with paperwork or go clean the toilets or get lunch or something like that. And it's, exactly. it's not, it's exactly. not the, the dream that everyone thinks it is. You know, I'm going to sit behind the board and do something, you know? Right, so, right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so that was, I was lucky in, in that sense of it. Um, but I didn't really know about, like, the disparity of women in recording at the time because... Mm. Um, my class was small, but it was half women. Uh, at least it started out that way. Um, one dropped out before the end of the program. But, you know, I had no idea. Um, and everybody there treated me pretty well. And the only person who kind of warned me was Larita. She's like, oh, you can't take, you know, you can't let these guys walk all over you. You know, you really have to be better than them. Um, you have to watch yourself. And I didn't know what she was talking about because everybody's really cool. Um, but then Universal closed and I tried to get a job afterwards. Um, I had just finished my undergrad and I tried to get a job afterwards and like nobody would return my phone calls. She actually had to go to Hollywood because she couldn't get any work in Chicago. And I did end up getting through to another one of the remaining big studios in Chicago. And I said, hey, you know what? I'd, I'd really love to assist here. Um, and they told me we don't hire women engineers, but you can answer the phone if you want. Wow. That's bullshit. Yeah. This, yeah, that was quite the blow. Um, I mean, I mean, I was so blindsided by that. The only thing I could say was like, no, thank you. And hung up the phone. Yeah. Like, you don't want to work in that environment. <laughs> right. I you know. And then I was like, well, what do I do now? I just spent all this money or my parents spent all this money for my education. Now, what do I do? 
Um, maybe I should go back to school and get like a real degree, like something like, I don't know, electrical engineering or something like that. I don't know. Um, but then WFMT radio called me and I've been there ever since. Hmm. Amazing. Well, I, I mean, I guess a bad situation turned into a good one, which is great. <laughs> it did. Yeah. Um, yeah. So as we were talking about before we started the podcast, um, my niche found me um, because originally, even though I studied classical music, I wanted to record rock bands, but that wasn't really available to me in Chicago. Um, but I got hired by WFMT Radio, which is the classical station in town. And the really cool thing about WFMT is that we broadcast about 225 live music broadcasts a year. And I am the one responsible for engineering most of the live music heard on the station. That's amazing. I'm sure that keeps you very busy then. That's a lot of live projects to, to do. Yeah, it, it, it is. I had a, I had a live broadcast um, from a venue yesterday. I'm going on a site visit today because I'm going to do another live broadcast on Saturday. Um, and, and these classical recordings, they're not just like a small session all the time, right? Like are, what, what, what kind of sessions are you working on typically? No, not always. Um, so FMT is usually like live broadcast, but I also have freelance clients um, that I record for album release and things like that. Um, also a lot of video audio for video projects, especially during the pandemic with um, ensembles not being able to have like an in-person season. So yeah, I do a lot of different things, but yeah, it's definitely, sometimes it's small. Um, like yesterday's performance is the De Myra Hess Memorial Concert, um, which we do from a church uh, in downtown Chicago. That's just a stereo pair pickup usually and an announcer microphone. So in terms of like inputs, it's pretty simple. Um, but my philosophy is you're actually mixing the sound when you're placing the microphones. So my choice of stereo pair, where I place it, how high it is, uh, how close it is, how far it is, is going to affect the stereo mix, the stereo picture. Um, you know, not only left to right information, but depth front to back information, placement of instruments in the stereo field. So in a way, the microphone placement is also influencing the mix of the sound. That makes a lot of sense. And I imagine if you're doing a lot of these live recordings, I mean, you don't really have a lot of time to mix these. It's like, you know, after no. the fact, you're doing it all on the fly. So, yeah, being very aware of your microphone positioning and how you create that depth, uh, mm -hmm. that definitely goes a long way with that then. Yeah, so that's one of the simpler ones. Um, I also did a live broadcast this past summer of the Chicago Symphony Orchestra, which was pretty fun, um, from an outdoor venue called Ravinia Festival. Um, so that was pretty cool because I, I think that was their first time they had played together as an orchestra since lockdown. Um, that was a big session. That was about 30 inputs. And wow. had, yeah. I had to coordinate with the festival staff because um, they were reinforcing the uh, sound for people in the venue and people on the lawn. Um, so coordinate with them to get splits and... Um, basically was there for two of the rehearsals and just to make sure everything was set up and working. And I had a sense of the mixes and I had everything subgrouped so I could switch between pieces because the 
the instrumentation would change a bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you 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 mentioned a little bit earlier that uh, you know your your niche kind of found you, mm-hmm. and with that, like, how did you learn the classical side of tracking? Because it's not like it's not like you could just invite a band over to your to your house and record in your bedroom with an orchestra. You know what I mean? Yeah, so like, right, right, right. What, how did you learn this stuff? It was a little trial by fire. Um, yeah, and as I was saying, I I studied classical music. I studied recording engineering in a conservatory style school, but we did very little in terms of classical music recording. Um, I at least understood classical music, could read a score, follow a score, which becomes very important, especially when you're doing album work. Because we don't generally overdub. There's we're not iso- nothing's really isolated. So you can't mm-hmm. really overdub something if something anybody makes a mistake. You have to retake that section and cut it in later. So gotcha. um, being able to read a score is is pretty important. Um, so you can or you're able to do that. Yeah. So how did I learn? Yeah, it was trial by fire. It was um so I started working at WFMT in I think it was 1993. Uh, in the glamorous position of overnight board operator. So I was the overnight equipment babysitter, more or less. <laughs> um, and then my boss at the time was like, oh, you have some recording experience. I don't really want to engineer this concert anymore. You do it. So that's the Wednesday Daymire Hess concert, um, which I've been doing ever since. And then I I just started working my way up. They started giving me more responsibilities and giving me more shows to engineer. So now, I mean, it's basically me. I'm I'm the I'm the house engineer at WFMT. There are a few freelancers that come in for certain things, but yeah, I engineer most of the live music heard on the station. That's amazing. So I'd love to go back to that idea that you brought up of like mixing through mic placement because I think that that's a really interesting way of putting it. And I I, I think we like a lot of people on the podcast have talked about the idea of like committing on the way in. And I think that obviously that it, it, this is definitely related to that, but I love the way you, you mentioned about like thinking about the depth and the ambience and how you, you mic up your, your mixes for that. Mm. Um, so I'm curious to know, like when it comes to recording classical or, or orchestral, I'm, I'm sure both of these are very, very different. And obviously depending on the size of the band, it would be very different, but like mm-hmm. what are some of your normal go-to approaches when it comes to recording something like um, I I love starting with stereo pairs. So there are three kind of main general categories I like to think about. The coincident pair where the microphones are, capsules are in the same space and we angle them some degree. So the the width of the angle determines how wide the stereo image is over speakers. Um, and then there's near coincident pairs. So there's a space in between the microphones and they're angled some degrees. So, so both the space and the angle determine the width. And then there's also a space pair technique, which basically is just spacing the microphones apart. And sometimes I'll use combinations of those techniques. Um, but I like to build the image with the stereo pair whenever I can. And then spot mic if I need to. Gotcha. And so as far as like things like... Um like checking for phase and that kind of stuff. Do you typically have a lot of time to actually do that kind of stuff ahead of time? I, I will I'll mono things out just to test. Um, it's so anytime you put space in between a microphone, you inter, you introduce phase interference. That's not necessarily a bad thing because it's helping us localize where the different instruments are in the stereo field. But I do always 
check everything in mono before I go live or, you know, before I, I record, um, just to make sure the frequency response isn't changing too drastically. So what I might expect is, especially if I have like space in between microphones is, um, the space is creating that kind of airiness, that openness in the sound. And if I collapse it to mono, I would expect that to kind of go away. But I would expect the rest of the frequency response to kind of maintain itself. And if there are two drastic changes when it goes from stereo to mono, then I know I have a placement issue and I have to go figure out what that is. Gotcha. And and as far as like mic placement with this sort of thing, how how far are we talking about like when it comes to creating that depth? Like are you you said you do use some close miking, so I'm assuming that is, you know, maybe a few inches away from the instrument, maybe, or mm-hmm. maybe, you know, I guess with strings, maybe you're a little bit further. But then as far as your ambient mics, like how far are you typically going? Uh, like in terms of distance? Yeah. So basically what I'm trying to do is is capture the overall sound of the ensemble. So it depends. And it depends on the space as well. Um so if I'm in a really beautiful, like I was recording a cappella choir in this really gorgeous monastery yesterday, I want to use that space. I want to hear a lot of that space, maybe about 12 feet away and about 15 feet in the air, something like that. I use like um, a technique called NOS or NOS, some people call it. It's a Dutch technique. So it's um, 30 centimeters, cardioid. 90 degrees. Um, So that's capturing a lot of the ambience. And I also used a pretty wide space pair as well of omnis to capture the space as well. So there's like a lot of ambience, but, but that works to help blend like an acapella choir. If it's something else, I may go closer. If it's not the best sounding space, I'll go closer. I'll still try to to work with the stereo pair as much as possible, but I'll lean more heavily on the spot microphones. Um, Something to note with, um, with the stereo pairs, they naturally recreate depth front to back information. Um, The more spot microphones I blend in, the less depth I'm going to have. So it's kind of a, a balancing act. Now, can I go back in and put delay and reverb on it? Sure. And I do do that in many cases, but, um, if I have a great sounding room, I'm more or less, let me, let me use it. Let me me give you the authentic, well, maybe a little bit better than the authentic listening experience. (laughs) Yeah. I bet. And that's, that's actually a really interesting point to bring up as well. When you have that, that point of, you know, when you bring in those close mics that it does change that depth because yeah, of course, now you're hearing that instrument much closer. And and mm-hmm. I think that that's something a lot of people kind of forget sometimes when it comes to creating depth in their mixes. It's just, you know, they, they think that everything, they need to still have all that close mic stuff in there. But really, like, that's not how we hear things when we're standing further away. We're, we're hearing more of the atmosphere of the room and that kind of thing. So I, I think it is a really good point that you bring up there. I'm curious to know, like, when, when it does come to things like reverb, you know, obviously reverb plays a big role in making the listener feel as if they're listening in a concert hall and that kind of stuff like that. So you, you did mention that you will typically add, or you will occasionally add in some reverb. Oh yeah. As yeah. Well. Is that, for sure. I'm yeah. not, I'm not a purist. There's some classical recordists who are absolute purists who would not touch anything like that. I'm, I'm just like, whatever works, whatever makes the best listening experience. Um, I like, I like Bercasti reverbs. I mean, we have one at the station. Um, 
So I'll use that when I'm working at the station. I like Lexicon, got some Lexicon plugin, got some Paragon plugins, uh, reverbs. I like those a lot. Um, sometimes I'll layer multiple reverbs in for fun, mm -hmm. you know, experiment. <laughs> of course, you got to have fun with it still, right? <laughs> Do you have any tips for getting the sound of reverb to sound clear and not muddy up a mix? Because because I, I, that often happens with especially with like a lot of rock music and stuff, people will add a bunch bunch of um, you know delay or reverb, and it, it can definitely cloud up a mix. So how do you find that balance of keeping the clarity of those instruments but still making it feel atmospheric? Yeah, I, I like the less is more um, approach to things, and when possible. Um, I mean, of course, there's there's times to kind of like play with your reverb and play with your plugins and and stuff like that. But if it's not Helping the mix, then it doesn't belong there. Um, so less is more is generally a better approach I've found um, when adding plugins and things like that. And also, if you have really good mic technique, you probably don't need a lot of stuff. You know, that that's yeah. going to help the clarity of the mix as well. For sure, no, that's a really good point. Because yeah, I think do, people do. Um, often just have that close miking technique and that's all they got. And then they try to add that, that atmosphere and depth and post and it's, it, it's deceptive. <laughs> and right. it could definitely, could, it, it could definitely go wrong. You can do it, but yeah. Why not like have all the tools at your disposal? So if you start it in from the ground up with the highest possible quality, the mix just kind of more easily unfolds. Gotcha. Yeah, I 100% agree with that. Um, as far as microphone selection goes, are you typically just using like large diaphragm mics or are you using small diaphragm condensers or dynamic mics? Like, what kind um, of stuff are you using? A lot of small diaphragm condensers. Um, they're easier to transport. Um, they're not so obtrusive to sight lines and things like that. Um, I tend to go for like some flavor of neutral. So Big fan of DPAs, like 4011s, 4006s, love those. Uh, Shep's microphones I like a lot. Uh, Neumann, those are my kind of my go-tos. Um, also have some AKGs. Um, I don't own any Sandkin. That's another microphone that's pretty common in classical music. I don't own any, but I've had good experience using them in mm -hmm. the past. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've only done a handful of classical recordings here and there, but uh, I was always a big fan of like the Earthworks mics. I found that those work really, really well. Yeah, those are pretty good, and they're pretty cost effective as well. Um, yeah, yeah. So if you're if you're doing if you're just starting to get into recording, I think Earthworks is a good is a good um, is a good brand, good place to start. For sure. Um, so with these recordings that you're doing, uh, you did say that they're live to air. So, I, you know, I imagine, them, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, I imagine things have to work really, really fast. And, you, you know, you only really get that one shot to, to make that mix right, work right, really right. well. So what sort of steps are you taking to prepare for those mixes so that you can pull them off as quickly and as professionally as you do? Yeah. Um, well, the nice thing is I I tend to like work in the same spaces, this, you know, the studio at WFMT, the venues, the remote venues we go to. I'm there a lot, so I know them very well. So that makes things go faster. Um, yeah, and just 
I think I've done, I don't know, close to 4,000 live broadcasts. So it, it, you, you, you make a system. There's a system to it. Um, like the way, you know, the way I set up, I do it more or less the same every time. So if I'm ever like in a time crunch or I have to work and I'm sick or haven't slept for like two days or whatever, I can just go on autopilot and just get it done fast. Also need to like, like really plan for the connectivity. So whatever unit I'm using to send um, audio back to the station, just make sure that's working, that's up and connected well before the airtime. That makes sense. Yeah, obviously you have to make sure that everything's going to work properly before you hit go. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. You had mentioned that you feel like you have a, a pretty well dialed in system that you you follow on a regular basis. I'd love to dive a little bit into that. Um, you know, like when it comes to things like the actual mixing side of it, mm-hmm. what is your typical system for, for getting those mixes done? Like, how do you start? Where do you start? What's your philosophy going into it? So there are two ways to do this. So if it's a live to air, there's I, I generally work in a certain way. If it's a recording for release, it's, I work in a little different way. In general, when I set up my microphone inputs, well, first of all, I, if it's a especially if it's a big ensemble and I'm going to have multiple microphones, I'm I'm making a microphone list. I'm making an input list. I don't skip on the on the pre pro in that respect. If it's a big operation like, you know, I. I recorded three operas with video for a company called Haymarket because they couldn't have their in-person seasons during COVID. So that was that was a fairly complex um, setup. So I just made sure, you know, I had my microphone list. I knew where I was going to put things. Um, we were also dealing with wireless lavalier microphones for the singers like how I was going to address those. So I planned that along, you know, way ahead of it. Also had, you know, meetings with the production team because there were cameras involved. So can't have microphones on tall stands. So, <laughs> you know, it's going to be in the shot. So trying to work with the the video crew. Interesting, because then you have mm-hmm. to balance that, that, that uh, element of like, you know, what looks good for camera versus what, oh, looks, yeah. what sounds better, you know? <laughs> yeah, and I've been pretty pretty successful um and getting a good mix for that um instead of like putting my stereo pairs for the orchestra up on tall stands which would not work in this case because it'd be in the camera shots i actually mic'd from the floor um interesting i have gotten some criticism for that but i'm just like have you heard it (laughs) um (laughs) Do you use like boundary mics for that kind of thing or do you still stick with your normal go-tos? Sometimes, sometimes I will, but um, like I put my 4011s and my 4006s on desk stands at the lip of the stage for the orchestra, um, did some spot miking, put boundary microphones on the stage for the singers, um, just lavaliers in their wigs and... <laughs> Gotta get creative with it. <laughs> just went, just went with it. Um, for like live to air... You know, I kind of have an approach and I do it that way every time. So I can do it on autopilot if I have to. Um, You know, generally I start with the stereo pairs on the lower channels, like like one and two are my main stereo pair, three and four, maybe my flank microphones. Um, And then I 
lay out the microphone inputs as I see them. So I, I go from audience perspective, like if it's an orchestra, you know, then after the stereo pairs, it'll be like probably the first and second violins, you know, I'll, I'll set it up as I see it. So I can kind of move faster because I know where where the faders are because I can see where the where these sections are and they correspond to the faders as they are across the console. Love it. Yeah, that's a smart technique. And then, yeah, even just looking at the pan knobs, you'd immediately be able to identify, mm-hmm. okay, yeah, that's off to the left of the stage or to the right of the stage. That yeah, kind of thing. right, right. If I'm doing something different like jazz or occasionally I'll do like acoustic rock stuff, then I do the like the bottom up approach, like kick, snare, or whatever Tom's overheads, yeah. bass, you know, whatever the rhythm section is, you know, I build my mix up from that. So that's a little bit different. I don't do that all that often, but um, it was kind of funny because I teach, um, I teach recording at both Columbia College and DePaul University in Chicago. And um, Columbia classes specifically stereo pairs. But we had we've had a we've been lucky this semester because we have been able to get a lot of studio time, which we aren't always able to do. So this last recording we did with them, I'm just like, well, what do you want to do? I'm like, have a band come in. Can we use stereo pairs with the band? I'm like, yeah, let's try that. So they had a three piece come in, um, drums, bass and keys. And then I gave them a challenge. Before they could touch any spot microphones, they had to balance the entire band in just like a room stereo pair. Love it. Yeah. So they were, I'm just like, well, you know, the bass amp sounds too far away or whatever. Um, I'm like, well, move it forward and put it on a, you know, stick it on top of a gobo or stick it on top of a table so it's a little higher. So I made them balance the whole thing out in the stereo pair before I allowed them to set up any other spot mics. Um, but we did do the spot mics. We went kind of simple on the kit, like overhead kick snare, mic on the bass amp, mic on the, on the keyboard amp and the stereo pair in the room. Um, and they were pretty amazed what the good placement will do and how like the drummer was like, wow, the drums sound really good. And you know, (laughs) we didn't put like a Tom mic anywhere. (laughs) That's amazing. I love that. That's such a a great challenge for people. And certainly, I mean, that's, that's how recordings were made back in the day. You know, if you ever have the chance to go to like the Motown studio, it's like, it was all about placement and, you know, shove the drummer in the corner, have the guitar player closer to this mic, that kind of thing. Exactly. It's such an amazing way to work. It's, it's definitely a challenge, but it's, it's definitely, it it, it works and it gives you a very cool character. And if you're in the right room with it, you can get some cool, cool tones off of that as well. Yeah, for sure. For sure. I love that. And and plus, you had mentioned at the beginning of this that you were kind of wanting to get into like the rock side of things and then you fell into the classical side. So right. I'm sure this gives you the opportunity to actually work on some of that stuff still, right? It's kind of fun. Um, I don't do it very often. Um, so that was fun having the class bring in, bring in the band, you know, and just sort of guiding them on that. Um, I did do, I was asked like as a volunteer to do something for community radio, like a jam band. And they're like, oh, you do radio, you mix live to radio, you can do the jam band. <laughs> I'm going, okay, yeah, I could I could do it. I haven't done stuff like that in a while, but sure, why not? So, um, and had no equipment to do it. It was just <laughs> basic, basic stuff. So, so I had a Mackie 1604. I brought a compeller and I brought... Um, an M3000 reverb, um, 
the venue had some drum mics. I brought like overhead mics. I took splits from the PA and stuff like that. And just basically, just because, you know, didn't have very much in the way of processing at all. I just ran the two mix through the compeller, set up a sun return for the reverb. The Mackie EQs are Mackie EQs, so not a, <laughs> not a lot you can do with those. Um, yeah just went with it and it was kind of funny because I compared it with their album and it was at least as good as that (laughs) I (laughs) I mean to me that was down and dirty with like very little stuff but it sounded at least as good as their album (laughs) for sure well that and that's really interesting as well because I think that a lot of people do have this impression that to make a pro sounding recording you need to have like tons of gear and you know have all the mics and and do everything like super professionally or whatever but like you just proven there that like you can get great results by just being scrappy with it and right, you know right. using what you've got right yeah just really understanding um your mic placement taking as much time as you can to place your microphones is going to make a world of difference yeah so so i'd also kind of i'd like to go actually a little bit deeper with the mic mic conversation because sure. I, I do think that like you've you've brought it up numerous times and it's it's clearly a very important part to your process mm-hmm. um as far as like um things like distance or uh angles like how 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 do those things affect the sound you're gonna get off of uh, a microphone yeah um so definitely anytime you place more than than one microphone you're going to have phase relationships. Um, the only stereo pair where it's is mono compatible is a coincident pair because the microphone capsules are in the same spot. So the sound is arriving at both capsules at the same time. So in the ideal world, there's no phase cancellation there, but you probably, you may want to place more than just as that pair of microphones. So um, you've got to like three to one rule is helpful in a lot of cases. So if you have one microphone, you place the next microphone three times that distance. So if it's like one foot away from the instrument, you place the next microphone three times that. So three or et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. It's a good guide. I think sometimes um, there are logistics involved where you can't follow that rule to the exact letter Sometimes yeah. um, the type of microphone will affect that placement and stuff like that. So, you know, I just kind of have that in mind when I start the setup. And then I I place from there and I adjust as needed. Um, Are you measuring distances? Not necessarily. It, it depends. If I have to put it back the same way, I will measure. Because um, we have, I've had sessions that go multiple days. Um, and we can't leave it set up. Mm. So, um, and as I said, we don't overdub. We can't overdub for the most part in classical music because we're not, nothing's really isolated. So if they want to come back and go, oh yeah, I really loved what we did on day number one and we're in day three, but this one part didn't play so well. Can we replay that part? It's got to match. So, yep. <laughs> so I've got to take measurements of everything and put it back the same way. Yeah. And as far as like angles with the microphones, mm-hmm. are you typically like angling them pointing at a specific like spot on the stage or like how, what does that look yeah, like? Yeah, I, I do a lot of things like line of sight. So I kind of think of my microphones as like a camera lens. So I'm like looking to see 
like how much is this pair going to pick up? If I'm really close, it's going to pick up whatever's next near it um, and kind of ignore what's to the side of it. So I might have to use extra microphones in that case, or I can maybe back up if I have a good sounding space and I'll get a bigger picture. I'll get a bigger overall picture of the ensemble. Um, so it just kind of depends. I do things a lot of like line of sight. Gotcha. That, well, that, that makes sense because especially if you said you're kind of typically mixing from the audience perspective as well, it's, mm-hmm. you know, you're kind of thinking of it as if the microphones are the person to some degree, right? And like, yeah, you know, what, yeah. What would those so it people just see? kind of depends on the engineer, but some will say like trying to make, you know, the listening position from sixth row center or 10th row center. I like to make it the unicorn seat, quite honestly. So I want to give you just a little bit better experience than you would hear if you were in sixth row center or 10th row center, just make it a little bit better than that. Yeah. So something you wouldn't necessarily hear if you were sitting at the concert. I just want to make that experience a little better. For sure. I love that expression, the unicorn seat. That's uh that's a new one for for this podcast. I've heard, um, <laughs> but but it makes sense, right? It's like you kind of always want things to sound a little bit larger than life, or a little bit clearer than, right, than right. You know, yeah. It would be, so if you found that seat in the concert hall, good luck getting the unicorn to move. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, I had uh, I had another guest on the podcast, Chris Baseford, and uh, he he was like Nickelback's engineer. Oh yeah, yeah. And he always talked about he always talked about how when he mixes his songs, he likes to think of his mixes as cartoon mixes because it was just like you know so blown out and not what what a normal person would hear, right? If they were oh, watching sure, a band sure. live, so it's 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 sort of taking that sort of approach, but. Uh, Obviously, to a, a more subtle degree when it comes to the classical side of things. Yeah, it does need to be a little more subtle. I mean, there are some like more modern classical pieces that you can do a little more experimental sound on. But I mean, for Bach, Beethoven, Brahms, you're you're going to be a little more conventional. With yeah, how it people sounds. people have re- people have heard those already, so they kind of already know what to expect. And right, right, yeah. exactly. Yeah, you're not going to go overboard with it and start adding layers of things in post and all that. Exactly. You know, mm-hmm. yeah, makes sense. You have to you have to preserve the um, the tradition of of those kind of songs, right? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Th- th- thank you for answering those questions about the mics. I I, I realized I went back and forth a lot, but I, I just it, as you were talking about it, and you c- you kind of kept bringing up mics, and I thought, you know, this is just such a I, I I love that idea of again going back to that idea of like mixing through mic placement. So I think understanding the mic techniques and and those different approaches to it, I think is is going to be really helpful for people listening to this. Um, I, I'm curious to know like when it comes to mixes, then for for you in the end, like once you've set up your microphones and you've mixed the, you know, you've essentially created this mix through your microphones. Ultimately, in the end, for you, like what makes a great mix? Um, hmm. how do you know when you found those magical spots with the mics or, or when you've, you've had to add that processing in post? It makes me happy. It's <laughs> <laughs> a good answer. <laughs> Simple. I like it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, I well, mean, it makes me happy. I, you know, I'm not, you know, when I stop like nitpicking and criticizing my, my mix, I, then I think I, I'm in, I'm in a good space. Yeah, that that makes sense. Like if if it sounds like what you hear in your head, then that that ultimately matters, right? Yeah, exactly. How important is gain staging to you in that miking process? Oh, that's a good question. Um, yeah, I think that's really important too. 
I mean, yeah, I, I start from the beginning of the chain and work my way back. So I think for me, mic placement is most important. Um, but the game stage is really important too. And actually also what I try to do to kind of, kind of simplify my mix per se is I, whenever possible, I try to set up the gains so that all the faders like sit around zero. So I'm not pushing faders all over the place. I don't need to, cause they're already kind of there. So again, that's, that's a trick I use for myself to make my mixes go a little smoother. Cause a lot of the times I'm doing it live. So makes a lot of sense. Yeah. One of my, one of my early mentors used to call that the meter stick bridge. It's like, just take a meter stick, pull up the faders all at once. And oh, yeah, that's, yeah, that's yeah, the yeah, dream, yeah, yeah. right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, that, or usually I'll just group things. And so I only have a few faders to worry about instead of like 30 or whatever. Yeah. That's cool. So, so as far as that gain staging, then, um, yeah, you're, are you you're just typically setting your faders at zero and then just kind of adjusting the preamp level? Yeah, to taste I, well, I I, tr- I try to find out where the pre clips and take it down, like a generous amount, because again, like classical music has a really big dynamic range or can have a really big dynamic range. Um, and often, like say if I get a sound check, if I actually get a sound check, sometimes I don't, but if I get a sound check and I go, okay, well, this is the absolute loudest point that they're going to perform. And I set the gain right at that edge. Generally, if there's an audience that comes in, generally the ensemble or the musicians, they, they play with more, more exuberance. So generally they get louder in front of an audience than they do I feel in like that's check. a very typical thing in this, even in the studio as well, right? It's like yeah. people will sound check always quieter than they actually play it. Right. So yeah, I, I generally use, I, I find where that clipping point is, but then I leave a generous amount of headroom. Gotcha. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense then. Yeah. And I think, I think that is a really good approach because yeah, you need to, you need to build in that headroom and, and know that, yeah, they are, they are going to probably play louder. And, and, that, and that's just a thing from experience too, that you learn very quickly that, you know, people always want to go louder. <laughs> yeah, right, 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 right. Yeah, it's, it or you know, you have you you may have like a singer or something who who's kind of saving their voice for the actual performance, so they may not sing full voice for sound check. So you just have to kind of keep that in mind. Gotcha. Now, as far as those dynamics that exist in classical music, mm-hmm. are you ever using any sort of compression to control some of that? Yeah, I, I actually do sometimes. Um, I'm actually a big fan of parallel compression. Um, I think that sounds very natural and cause yeah. Cause if you think about it, like if you're like listening in your car, you don't want to be turning up the volume, down the volume down because based on, you know, so, so we want to leave some dynamic range, but we probably don't need like, like a hundred DB of dynamic range, which some classical music can easily do. So mm-hmm. I, I will do some compression. Um, I like parallel compression a lot. I, I may just, you know, parallel compress the, you know, the entire mix. There have been times I have used a little more compression. So I did a, did an album. I think that came out in 2018 on, it's released on Delmark records. It's called, um, new Latin American classical music for guitar and string quartet with um, Fareed Hawk and the Kaya String Quartet. So Fareed, um, he's primarily known as a jazz guitarist, but he does go back and forth a bit to classical. Um, So I actually did um, 
did use a little more compression on that. So I, instead of like parallel compressing the whole mix, I did actually use a little compression on each spot mic. So I had gotcha. like a stereo pair. And then I had four spot mics for the string quartet. <clears throat> and for Fareed, um, the guitar was a combination of a 414 and a Neumann KM86. Very cool. Yeah, so that was a little bit of a blend. And then there's a little bit of compression on that. Um, and then there's some lexicon, medium hall reverb on that, and a little bit of EQ here and there. But again, I try to do that more with the mic placement than just grab EQ knobs. Yeah, I love it. And I think that the parallel approach makes a lot of sense, actually. Mm -hmm. I, I've heard a lot of like purists say like, oh, you should never compress classical music and just leave all the dynamics yeah, in there. Yeah, but sometimes, it, I, mean, I mean, you can easily have 100 dB of dynamic range. It's That's a lot. It's a lot. When you consider pop music, maybe you have 3 dB. <laughs> um, <laughs> and true. then if you're listening in like, a, like say in your car... Um, when it gets really quiet, now you're turning up the volume and then all of a sudden it gets really light. Oh my God, I got to turn it down. Yeah. You're just saving people from having to mix it themselves with their car right, stereo right, right, volumes, right? Right. right. <laughs> and I think again, it makes, it makes the listening experience, you know, it betters the listening experience. If, if we don't have, if, it, it makes sense to kind of compress the dynamic range a bit. Yeah, I, I agree with you because, yeah, if people are constantly having to go to the volume knob to turn things up or down, then you're creating an unpleasant listening experience for the for the audience. And ultimately, you know, kind of to what you said, like you want your mix to make you happy and mm -hmm. people who you don't want to frustrate people by having to make them constantly turn up and down their volume right, to, exactly. to enjoy their music. Right. So, yeah. yeah, I love it. It's just all about, you know, making that experience better for people and, uh, you know, just making uh, making a more pleasant yeah, making a more pleasant sound overall for everything. So I think the parallel example is a good way to do it because you are still preserving the natural dynamics of mm -hmm. what's what's in the music, but you're 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 helping the audience a little bit more with it as well. Yeah, exactly. Awesome. I love it. Well, Mary, I know we're running short on time, so uh, we could probably start to wrap up here. But if anyone wants to learn more about you and follow you and, and the work you're doing, what's the best place for them to do that? Um, you can come to my website. It's Mary Mazurik, M-A-R-Y-M-A-Z-U-R-E-K.com. Amazing. Awesome. Well, well, thank you again for taking the time to do this. I really appreciate it. And uh, yeah, I think you gave some really great insight there. I, lo I love just your philosophy on how you treat these recordings. And um, I think that, you know, whether people that are listening to this are recording classical or orchestral stuff or even rock music, like there's still a lot to take from this. And um, these these concepts that you've talked about here don't just apply to one style of music. It, this can be used to anything. And, you know, you shared that example of recording the band in the studio. And, um, you know, I think that that's that's proof of it. You know, you can you can keep things minimalist as you need to and, and you know, just really focus on the foundations of, of proper technique. And that'll get you the results that you that you're after. So I, I, I love that. So thank you so much for sharing all of that. My pleasure. So that was my interview with Mary Mazurik, and that was amazing. I loved her approach to how she tackles these live sessions and works with all these classical artists. And I really, really appreciate the concept of mixing through mic placement. And I just think, you know, hearing her talk about why she does things the way she does and, you know, how she positions our microphones and how she sets up her gain to create that meter stick mix. You know, I think that that is just really, really fascinating. And I think that this could definitely be applied regardless of whatever genre you're working in. You know, these are techniques that 
aren't specific to any sort of genre. You can absolutely do this in your home studios when you're recording a band. And I also really appreciated her story about recording a band with just a stereo pair. You know, I think a lot of people feel like they need to have a gazillion mics to record a band properly. And when you hear her story about how she's able to make a recording sound really, really good with just two microphones and factoring in things like distance from the instruments to the microphones, all that kind of stuff, you know, it makes recording on a budget really possible. And it goes to show that you can actually get really great results. So I love Mary's approach. And uh, I hope that you found that very interesting and that you're able to take a lot from this interview and apply it to your own productions. Now, if you did enjoy this episode, definitely make sure to subscribe to the podcast. That way you're notified about all new episodes as they go live. And also make sure to visit MasterYourMix.com. That is a website where I help out musicians with creating pro sounding recordings from their home studios. And on the website, we've got lots of great resources designed to help make that process easy for you. One of which that you definitely want to check out is called The Mixing Mindset. That is a book that I created that really breaks down the process of mixing from beginning to end, showing you what things to be looking out for, what tools to be using, how to dial in settings, all of the stuff that you need so that you can confidently make mixes with ease and have a repeatable process that you can follow every single time. This way, you're not feeling overwhelmed. It's just super straightforward and you can keep focused and keep excited about what you're doing. So check that out. It's called The Mixing Mindset and that's available at MasterYourMix.com. So with that said, that is it for this episode, and I'll talk to you in the next one. Take care. Later. Thanks for listening to the Master Your Mix podcast. To have your questions answered, submit your questions to questions at masteryourmix.com. Please go to iTunes and subscribe and leave a review. And for more information on how you can improve your mixes, visit masteryourmix.com.